technically the second week of Christmas, if you're an Anglican, which I think you all are, or should be. And in the second week of Christmas, there were two gospel texts that we could have read from in the lectionary today. And uh, as the person who uh, was assigned to preach, I got to choose which of the two that I wanted. And uh, I picked this one. And it's an intriguing part of scripture. It always has been. It's the only text that we have of Jesus as anything except an infant or an adult. It's also the text that includes the earliest spoken words of Jesus. And it's a passage that at first glance seems very simple, even a little disconnected from the grand theme of Jesus' life and ministry. But within this little story, there's something that we discover of vital significance to who Christ is in his humility in the season in which we're celebrating his incarnation, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's look into it, but let's pray before we do that. Father, we ask for your grace this morning, for the hearers and for myself, that I would reveal only what is in your word. I ask, Lord, that you would make the text clear. Holy Spirit, please come and apply it to our lives. Help us to uh, take from it what is necessary. And Lord Christ, may we see you this morning in this text. Amen. Before we get to Luke 2, it's important that we glance back and look into chapter 1 just briefly to start out. Verse 31, Luke 1, this is when the angel delivers the news to Mary that she will be the mother of the Messiah. It says there, Luke 1.31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Note that last part again. He will be called Holy, the Son of God. Hold on to that, because it's going to come up again later. Now, into our text, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. We see there, says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And over the last few Sundays, we have been seeing in our texts from the pulpit that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is a righteous man. We get his genealogy in Matthew's begats. We know he is part of the Davidic line. 
We also see his nobility and his resolve to protect Mary after the pregnancy is discovered. And we know that he obeyed the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a dream and told him not to fear taking her as his wife because her pregnancy was not the result of infidelity, but it was an act of God. We know that Mary is also righteous. The angel delivers the message to her that she's going to be the mother of God, to her great surprise. But her response, what we now refer to as the Magnificat, indicates that she is very literate in the language of the scriptures. Joseph and Mary are not sinless, but they are both pious and serious worshipers of Yahweh. And Luke is very careful to tell us in great detail all of the ways that they have been keeping the law. Earlier in chapter two, after Jesus' birth, it says that he is circumcised on the eighth day. This is in keeping with the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And that became later codified in Leviticus. Also in Leviticus, there contains a purification ritual for mothers who give birth, and Mary and Joseph are abiding by that as well. They also dedicate the baby to Yahweh at the temple. And then, just a few verses back, we see in Luke chapter 2, verse 39, it says, after they performed everything according to the law, they return home. Jesus' earthly parents are law keepers, and they are performing one of the main duties of a faithful Jewish household by making the annual journey to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So it says in verse 42, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Now, this may be Luke again telling us how Jesus' parents are following the law, but it may also be suggestive of something more significant. We don't know this exactly to be the case, but just due to his age, Jesus is nearing the time in which he would undergo something akin to the bar mitzvah. That's becoming a son of the law, a son of the commandments. Now, there isn't completely solid evidence that this is a requirement yet. However, due to what we've already seen about Mary and Joseph, their commitment to the law as a family, it may have been their expectation of Jesus that he ought to prepare for a transition into adulthood by going and learning in these Passover trips. Now, this would usually happen through a sort of catechism, you know, a system of questions that a boy would answer that he would have to know both the question and the answer side. So, what is the capital of New York? And Albany is the capital of which state? That sort of thing. That could be the custom. It also could just be the custom is that every year, Mary and Joseph and Jesus go to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's just a custom because the Passover happens every year, so of course, they're going. By the way, that is exactly the same way that it becomes customary to go to church. You just go. It happens every Sunday, 
You just show up and you gather your children around and you take them too. And what do you know? You got a custom. So we read in verse 43, when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now this is the moment where blood-curdling fear begins to set a light in the hearts of parents everywhere. It's one thing to lose your 12-year-old at Walmart. It's pretty scary, but there's got to be a very high chance of finding him somewhere in that store, probably in the gaming section. But you didn't mislocate him in the same place that you are. You didn't leave him home alone either. That's also pretty scary, but again, even if you and your family went on a trip to France and you left your son at home, it's highly unlikely that he would be anywhere else. This is a degree of terror higher than that. What if you've left him in France? Or New York City? Or, let's just say, a day's journey from Binghamton, if you're driving, Virginia Beach, Detroit, or a place I would like to go, Quebec City. He's there. And though he may have been there before, probably every year, that's what God-fearing Jewish parents like Mary and Joseph would do, he's still a child, alone, in a big city. You left the place, he's still there. You might say here that while Joseph and Mary are very pious, maybe they could do a little better job on the organizational side of parenting. Many commentators, however, are very gracious to them, indicating that according to travel custom, unless a woman was pregnant the way that Mary was when she and Joseph had traveled to Bethlehem 12 years earlier, that the men and the women would typically move in separate groups. So women with women in the front, men with men in the back. Children, if of walking ability, would roam in between, sometimes running ahead, usually under the watchful eye of the mother, but sort of free to roam too. Furthermore, as we've already seen, Jesus' age is very important. He's on the precipice of a categorical change precipice of moving in Hebrew culture from boyhood into manhood. After that switch, he would have been expected to travel with the men. So Mary might be forgiving, forgiven for assuming that he's there, just as Joseph could be forgiven for assuming that he's at least checked in with his mother and he's running up on ahead with a kid somewhere. Jesus is in between the two places. We can speculate forever on how it actually happens, but the bottom line of it is, at some point, Jesus slips away from the group to go to the temple court without anyone else noticing. Mary and Joseph frantically search the camp. Neither of them have seen him on the day's journey. They have no choice but to retrace their steps. But not immediately, 
because it's at day's end. They can't head back until the morning toward Jerusalem. If you're Mary or Joseph in this scenario, how much sleep are you getting that night? So then, verse 46, we read, after three days, they found him. Now, one does not need to be deeply into numerology or a follower of QAnon to see some significance in the numbers that Luke is using here. Jesus is found after three days, three gut-wrenching days, three what-if days. This creates an interesting parallel with another set of three days some decades in the future when, during Passover, one Sunday morning at sunrise, some women, including Mary herself, head for the tomb to put spices on the body of the crucified Jesus, only to not find him where they thought that he would be. Those three days would have been a different kind of pain for Mary, I'm sure, but in that case too, Jesus is where he's supposed to be. Not lying in the tomb, but ministering in his resurrected body. In any case, <coughs> it's not just that the boy is found, but notice where he is found. He is, there in verse 46, in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. This would have been common in the temple. The sitting, the listening, the asking questions. It's unlikely that Jesus was the only 12-year-old there. As we saw earlier, 12-year-olds were expected to know some things in order to become sons of the law. In order for this to happen, some temple training was probably a prerequisite. <coughs> Excuse me. So other than the fact that he ought to be in the caravan, heading for Nazareth, this isn't the most shocking revelation about Jesus. Notice, by the way, it doesn't say that Jesus is teaching. It says that he's listening and asking questions. Jesus is not playing, are you smarter than a fifth grader, with the rabbis. He's sitting humbly under their authority by listening and asking questions. Now, I consider myself to be pretty humble. I know that's weird to say out loud, because if you have to say that you're humble, are you really, you know? But if I'm God and human flesh, I just don't see myself going down to the temple to sit under the instruction of some rabbi. But Jesus does. And with his actions, he paints a picture of humility that I cannot begin to comprehend. He puts himself under the authority of the temple teachers. But he will do more to show his humility before this scene is ended. So now we're at verse 47. It says here, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Note the two big verbs there. 
those who heard him were amazed and his parents were astonished. Come back for those words in a few minutes, but just a bit more detail on this method of temple instruction. The pupil would ask a question of the teacher. And then he listens to the teacher's answer. And then the pupil would say the answers of their question that the teacher had said back to them, sort of articulating them in his own words and then connecting them to other answers where that was possible. This is not entirely unlike the Socratic method, the use of questions and definitions to build a logically coherent and also a reproducible explanation of an argument or an idea. Jesus, it appears, is masterful at answering these questions with clarity, with understanding. The teachers and the fellow watchers are amazed. But Mary and Joseph are astonished. Literally, that word means blown over by it, blown away. Why? Have they not seen this kind of knowledge on display before? We know Jesus is sinless, yes, and so perhaps it's simply a matter that he's never done anything like this before. Go missing for three days, and then when he's found, he's talking about so many things and in ways they've never seen before. Maybe this is just too much for Mary and Joseph. Whose kid is this? They're probably asking themselves. Years later, after the start of Jesus' earthly ministry, the people of Nazareth, the people of Jesus' own hometown, will be completely befuddled in the exact same way. They will be astonished. They will say, as they did in Matthew 13, where did this man get wisdom in these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not the one whose mother is called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? The authority that Jesus speaks with later in the Gospels and the wisdom and the knowledge that he has at 12 years old are further evidence of his divine sonship. And so Mary, seeing Jesus alive and safe, right there in the temple, as if all is well, says to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. I am a child of a 20th century mother, not a first century mother. I recognize that there are some significant cultural differences in address that have occurred over the last two millennia. And while I trust the translators of the biblical text, and I trust Luke, who, by the way, most likely got this account directly from Mary, the mother of Jesus, and I trust that Mary's recollection of these events some 20 or 30 years afterward are very strong, strong enough to believe her recounting of the details. But I have to say, I have my doubts about the amount of restraint in her words here. <laughs> I have to believe that after three days of searching for him, 20 or so miles having been walked, 
then back, 20 more are due again once they found him. Not to mention the sleepless nights, the constant fear. Well, I have to believe that this is a milder version of what she actually said. I know that if I was in the position of Jesus here, and you'll forgive me for putting myself in that position, but just for the sake of this example, and my mother was in the place of Mary, let me tell you, this would not have been the way that she would have addressed me. But regardless of the exact words spoken by Mary in this incident, her tone is unmistakable. There's anger, frustration, disappointment in her question. How could you do this to me? How could you do this to us? Why would you inflict on us this amount of worry? She's scolding him. Have you ever said something like that to God? How could you do this to me? Why would you do this? Don't you know how worried this makes me? Don't you realize how painful this is? And when we ask these questions of God, we expect an answer too, though not usually a verbal one. We just expect him to take away the pain, take away the oppression, take away the suffering. But Mary's suffering is not relieved here, not at least in the way that she might suspect. In fact, this pain of disappointment that she feels is but a foretaste of the pain that she will feel many more times in her life. As we read earlier, she and Joseph, when they presented Jesus in the temple, the prophet Simeon comes and prophesies that a sword would pierce Mary's heart. This is, of course, not a literal sword. It's largely referring to the ultimate piercing pain of the death of her child upon the cross. And yet, it also may have been at least partly pointing to this very incident. This incident that is indicative of the type of ministry that Jesus would have. A ministry in which he's largely alone. Just a few true followers rejected by his own people. A ministry that will see the temple rabbis astounded at Jesus' words, but not willing to believe him. A ministry in which Jesus is at least initially separated from his family in order that he might reach those who are far off. This piercing pain of Mary's is a near fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy. I can identify with Mary's level of concern here. I really see her side of things. The text, however, gives no indication that Jesus did anything wrong. You wouldn't even want to go so far as to say that Jesus is just sort of aloof, too heavenly-minded for any earthly good. You know the type. Jesus has a reason that he's going to the temple and not on the road trip. And he says why in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the moment where everything should click into place for Mary 
and for you and for me. Don't be alarmed, though, if it doesn't for you, because it didn't for Mary either. Jesus starts by exchanging Mary's your father and I with my father, an unambiguous recognition of his own claim to deity. These are Jesus' very first recorded words, and they represent a direct confirmation of what the angel had told Mary earlier in chapter one, this first verses we read today, that her child would be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. Later in Luke chapter three, Jesus is identified by John the Baptist, who says, behold the Lamb of God, and then he baptizes him. And then when Jesus arises from the water, God's voice from heaven proclaimed, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. The boy Jesus knows of his relationship to the father. He's wondering why Mary and Joseph are not aware of it. Did you not know, is what he effectively says. The, I must be in my father's house, it's very catchy, not the best translation. Something more like the King James Version gets to the heart of it. I must be about my father's business. I must be with my father. I must be doing the things of my father. It's literally, I must be about my father. And says in verse 50, that they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. This is a common occurrence in Luke's gospel, a sort of regular refrain from those close to Jesus who hear what he says, see what he does, and they do not understand at all what is going on or what's meant by any of it. The disciples in particular, we'll come to see later, are the most confused about many of the things that Jesus says, and they tell him so, and they ask him for explanations. Mary and Joseph, at least here, are also not immediately aware of what Jesus means with these words. Mary asks Jesus a question in which she is seeking an explanation. And Jesus answers her question with a question, with two questions, with two rhetorical questions at that. That's his explanation. Now you ought not think here of Jesus as being sort of an inconsiderate preteen defying his parents, and then when they confront him about it, then he pulls the God card. Okay? Don't think that because he does not pull the God card at all. He pulls the son card, the true son card. He says, in no uncertain terms, I am not running about doing as I please. I'm putting myself under the authority of the Father, my Father. Where he has me go, I go. He's found sitting under the authority of the temple rabbis, and he has done so because he is also under the authority of the Father. With Jesus, there's no talking back. There's no silent stare down. There's also no coddling or condescension toward Mary or Joseph at all. Not a whiff of a sarcastic, well, mother, I am the Messiah, you know, and as such, I sort of do things as I see fit. You couldn't possibly understand, you know. He answers her question 
by stating who he is. Let's that be enough. He's not seeking after his own will. He's submitting to the will of his father. In the very next verse, he shows his humility even to his human parents. It says there in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and submitted to them. He's the son of God. He's also the son of Mary and Joseph. Because he's humble and lowly, he shows that he can obey both. If you're 12 years old, if you can remember being 12 years old, did you think that your parents always made the best possible decisions in every situation? Did you ever think, I know better than them? And every once in a while, objectively speaking, you were right. But you just went along and did what they said anyways because they were your parents. And as they are your authority, you just willingly submit with no complaints. You ever do that? I did not. And if I thought that I knew better than my parents, I made very sure that they knew that. Because I'm not Jesus. And you're not Jesus. You and I, and Mary and Joseph, are fallible. We are finite. But Jesus is the source, as St. Paul says, of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he submitted to his parents. Even when he truly, authoritatively, knew better than they did. We've seen him humble himself before the temple rabbis in humility to the Father, and now he submits to Mary and Joseph. What a picture of the humility of the Son. Our text ends with a summary sentence in verse 51, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. This is the second time this statement has appeared in this chapter of the gospel. The first time is when Mary recounts the word from the shepherds who were watching their flocks, but suddenly came to worship Jesus. You remember, they came because they had been visited by a multitude of heavenly hosts, angelic beings, who proclaimed the birth of Christ, and then they went throughout the land telling everyone about this appearance. The text there says that all who heard this word from the shepherds wondered about it. More literally, they were astonished at the news, and they tried to make sense of it all. That same word, astonished, is used many times by Luke. Earlier in chapter 1, when Zechariah, the priest, the father of John the Baptist, who, if you remember that story, was dumbfounded by the angelic announcement about his own wife's shocking pregnancy. His voice is taken away, and he has to write with a sign that his unborn child's name will be John. And it says in the text, Luke uses the same word. The people who heard this were astonished, and they wondered about this news. Again, Luke uses it when he says that Mary and Joseph were amazed or astonished when Simeon, the prophet, when they present Jesus at the temple. And if you remember, the same word is used when Mary and Jesus find, or Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple. They're astonished 
at what they see, and they're blown away by it. There's a kind of stunned amazement all throughout this story, a kind of recognition of something that's glorious, but just being too overwhelmed, too in all of it to be able to categorize it, like seeing the Mona Lisa, or listening to a live performance of Handel's Messiah, or what I've been told, it's like to stand at the Grand Canyon. So Mary is treasuring up these moments, these sacred mysteries, uncertain of what they mean, but hiding them away like treasures, hoping to preserve them for a later time when she can know what Yahweh was doing in that moment. As of yet, she does not know what they mean, but she holds on to them anyway. I'm not sure if you're aware of this controversy, but there's been a lot of complaining in recent years about the song, Mary, Did You Know? Now, you might be blissfully out of the loop enough to enjoy it when you hear it, but once you've been informed of the brouhaha, it's very difficult to listen to without hearing people rolling their eyes into the back of the head and chiding that, yes, of course, Mary knew because obviously the angel told her and her response in the Magnificat confirms her full knowledge of what it will mean to be the mother of the long-promised Messiah. Now, I like the song, or I should say I liked the song before it was ruined for me, because I think at its heart, the song is asking a more fundamental question about the meaningful knowledge of a thing, rather than the nature of knowledge about a thing. For instance, I know the nature of what it means to watch your child grow up, because I've seen many parents drop off their kindergarten students for the first day of school. And I've watched them as they, they hugged their little boy and they said, have a great day. And then they gave him a little shove toward the teacher's aide waiting at the classroom door. And I've observed these parents as they watched him walk into the classroom in a kind of hope-filled agony. I've watched them sometimes too frozen to take their eyes off of them until the classroom door closes completely, holding their breath, expecting to need to comfort him the moment he realizes what's going on, that they aren't there. Sometimes I have observed parents just completely breaking down on the walk back to their car. But you see, my observation of these realities while informing me about the nature of the situation occurring does not help me to know in a meaningful way what that experience is like. Those days when I was watching this happen, Amber and I were just by ourselves. But since then, I've become a father. And in a way, I'm beginning to know a bit about what that experience may mean but I can't yet say that I know it. Well, I think that that is more at the heart of the question about what Mary knew. What is it like to experience something as surreal as kissing the face of God? What is it like to nurse 
with life-giving nourishment the very one who gave you life? How does one instruct the Son of God, the author of the very law that she and Joseph are keeping in their yearly journey to Jerusalem for the Passover? That Luke tells us twice in this chapter that Mary is pondering what on earth these things mean is not a mistake. She's trying to put the pieces together. She's reckoning with the knowledge of being the mother of the Christ, the son of the living God, who is also a boy named Jesus, a boy who is himself growing and developing just as other Nazarene boys do. She's living in the strange reality between those two truths. Her pondering is a reasonable, in fact, almost a necessary reckoning of the two natures of her son, his divine and his human natures mysteriously aligned. It's actually something strangely comforting about her pondering, just pondering, wondering in amazement, ultimately remaining calm, carrying on in her role as the mother of Jesus, and treasuring up the things that she sees. What does she know about the grand plan? A little, not all of it. In so many ways, Jesus is hidden from Mary. She's his mother, but she does not and cannot know some things. But the things that she sees and cannot know she treasures away. For even she, the mother of God, will need to come to know him not as her son, but as her savior. And so do you. The celebration of the incarnation is meaningless if Jesus is just a smart boy from Galilee. But it's also meaningless if Jesus is just a God playing dress up in a human shell like Zeus transfiguring his appearance so that he can hide unknown amongst mortal men. Jesus is no less God, sitting in the temple, talking with the rabbis at age 12, than he is turning over the tables in the temple of the money changers at age 33. He's not less God on his journey to Jerusalem than he is on his trip home. He is gloriously and wondrously fully God fully man. He knows who he is. He knows who his father is. He knows what he must do. He's come to be our savior. He's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. <coughs> Maybe you are here today and you believe this to be true, but you don't understand why he is allowing something to happen. You really want to ask him, how could you treat me this way? I would ask you to put your tears into a jar and treasure them away for a later time when you can see what they all mean. And I would call you to remember the words of our Lord, Christ himself, who calls you to come to him with your burdens and to take his yoke upon you for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And then come to his table and adore him. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for sending your son in this wonderful mystery. We thank you for providing for us in a way that we could not for ourselves. And we thank you for the picture of humility that Jesus has given us in his life and in his death. And we ask that we would take it and use it and be like our older brother in whose name we pray. Amen.